This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, December 2nd, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. It may come as some surprise to learn that the prohibition of alcohol has been tried in many parts of the world. The results, though, are in many ways exactly what you would expect. That's according to author Mark Schrod. The book is Smashing the Liquor Machine. We spoke last month. When you hear descriptions of American prohibition, and your book goes into the experiences of uh Attempts, attempts of differing quality of prohibition around the world. What do most Americans either not understand or what do they understand that is just incorrect? Well, there's a whole lot that, that goes to it. Uh, I think at the core of it, though, is that it's been positioned and repositioned so many times uh, into something of a, a sort of cultural politics that, uh, you know, prohibitionists were Bible thumpers moralizing, you know, who wanted to to take away your freedom to drink and and tell you what thou shalt and shalt not drink and uh, and and do with your lives, um, and uh, and so yeah, so for a long time I was curious about you know the the co- conventional wisdom for prohibition. Uh, and uh, again, my focus is not so much as a, an American historian or anything along those lines. You know, my interest is in uh, comparative history and uh, you know, Russian history and, uh, and, and whatnot. So, um, so when it comes to the conventional wisdom of why we had prohibition in this country, again, the, the usual explanation is that it was uh, about sort of Midwestern evangelical Bible thumpers uh, you know, it's sort of this cultural backlash against modernization and immigration, um, and uh, they see it as as a very reactionary movement. Uh, and I was, I was like, okay, well, you know, again, my background being in sort of European politics and uh, and, and Russian politics in particular, I was like, wait a minute, you know. This isn't the only country where you had prohibition. You had around twelve countries around the globe, and 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 many more trying different you know variations of, uh, of of alcohol control. Um, and so I was like, you know, if we just kind of put our conventional wisdom aside about American politics and look at what prohibition was like in the rest of the world, you get a completely different understanding. It was a uh, you know, in, in many cases, if you're looking at uh, at uh, Russia, or if you're looking at Sweden, if you're looking at uh, Germany, Austro-Hungarian Empire, uh, it was in all these cases sort of a, a very progressive movement to rein in the excesses of what they saw as a um, as, as sort of the, the worst excesses of of predatory capitalism. The idea of getting people, uh, you know, hooked on alcohol and then effectively bleeding them dry, uh, and so. Uh, so it gets tied in with sort of anti-colonialism, anti-imperialism, uh, anti-big business movement in all these different uh, d- different areas, and so that was that was kind of the impetus for this whole thing. It was like trying to figure out, okay, what was prohibition like in the rest of the world, and then the hope was maybe you know in chapter eight of a two hundred page book that you know maybe there'd be some insights for what we could learn from the American perspective. Um, and uh, it was at that point in time, I you know, kind of uh, con- concluded the research and, and, and whatnot and sat down with some colleagues of mine here in the department. Uh, and they said, OK, OK, if, if this is true, if what you're telling me is true, that prohibition in the rest of the world was kind of this movement for indigenous self-rights and protections against sort of the worst excesses of, of predatory capitalism and this imperial state that kind of benefits from the, the drunken debauchery of their own people – uh, a colleague of mine said, okay, where, where are the Native Americans in your account? Where are they? And I was like, oh, you're right. They're, they're not there. I don't have any. Uh, and, and so 
that one question kind of is what added eight more chapters onto this book because it's it made it forced me to kind of take this framework and approach American history from it. and when you start to look at it through that you, you start to recognize that you know prohibition has much deeper roots in the United States than just the 18th amendment it goes back uh i guess even predates the founding of the United States if you look at native americans african americans a friend of mine anthony kamegna uh who uh has appeared on this podcast a number of times at clued me into a book called The Alcoholic Republic, which uh, you note as one of the inspirations for uh, some of the work that you did in your book, Smashing the Liquor Machine. And it that book goes into some pretty clear detail about the sort of galling extent to which alcohol was consumed uh, on a daily basis by average Americans from the founding era up through uh, well, you tell me up through uh, at least the beginning of the 20th century. Yeah. And so there's a, a lot of alcohol that that's being consumed, uh, you know, partly because of the realities, you know, that uh, there are no really good alternatives. Right. So, you know, stream water could be contaminated. You could get, uh, you know, bacterial infections. One of the safest things that you could drink was, you know, an alcoholic, you know, sort of mildly fermented beverage. Uh, and so, you know, as, as a consequence, you know, uh, the founding of this country was was steeped in alcohol use and abuse. Uh, and so even, you know, many of the founding fathers uh, were, you know, either involved in alcohol production themselves. Uh, others were involved in sort of decrying the, uh, you know, the, the negative externalities that came of it, the crime and, uh, and uh, you know, drunkenness, uh, you know, that's, that came of that. So, uh, so there's a, a very rich history of American drunkenness, as it were, uh, you know, straight through. Um, but what's interesting about the Rohrbach book is that, you know, sort of the the levels of alcohol consumption that we had at sort of the, the founding of the United States drop off precipitously well before what we consider to be the Prohibition era. They kind of drop off, uh, you know, in the 1830s, 1840s, uh, rather significantly. And that's many cases due to uh, the influence of, of early temperance organizations. Uh, and, and so sort of the, the Washingtonian societies and, uh, you know, kind of these self-help communities that uh, that even Alexei de Tocqueville talks about in his uh, his book on America, he sees this as one of the foundational virtues of uh, American society is, and I guess civil society uh, are these self help communities where where people are coming together uh, to to wean themselves off of alcohol and alcoholism uh, in the interest of the interest not only of their own self betterment but of the betterment of their entire communities as well. So. Uh you said that you were a little bit confused by a lot of the stories that were told about prohibition, uh, at least with with regard to the American experience. Give us a sense of where these other efforts occurred around the world uh, and what the time frames were. Well, what's interesting and what got me into this area of, of interest to begin with uh, was was kind of the recognition that right around World War One. Uh, you know, that's sort of the era that we have American prohibition. Uh, but that's also the kind of this wave of international prohibitions all at about the same time. Uh, so you get, you know, prohibitions in countries like, uh, you know, the, the Russian Empire under the czars uh, in Iceland and Norway. Uh, you get it in vast swaths of colonial Africa and India. You get it in uh, the, the Ottoman Empire and, and sort of secular Turkey. And, and so that became sort of the, the puzzle. It's like, wait a minute. 
you know, from again, from a political science perspective, what is the logic? Because my assumption, my working assumption, all this was that, uh, and this became the title of my first book, was you know, the political power of bad ideas. You know, as I began with this working assumption that that prohibition is a bad idea, that it, it begets all these negative externalities. You get the uh, you know the scoff laws, you get the disrespect for law and order, you get the Al Capones of the world, and all these sorts of things. And these were all things that you could reasonably foresee, right? Um, but from a, a a sort of politics perspective and political science perspective, there was no logical reason for it. Right, so if you want to call it a bad idea or a suboptimal uh, policy outcome, there's no logical reason for a lot of countries to adopt a well-known bad idea all at the same time or around the same time. Right, so the idea is that you know, in, in po- political science, is that you know, if you have a good, effective public policy, then other countries will emulate that. But it's based upon the notion that you know it, it it does what it's supposed to, and it alleviates the societal harm. So there was really no logical reason for that. So that's what kind of got me into this uh, this notion. Um, but what you find is that you know, kind of working your way backwards from the World War One era, um, is that in countries around the globe, and including the United States, you know, the the roots of um, this movement not against alcohol per se, but against what they called the liquor traffic. Um, you know, and I think that's a very important distinction between liquor as, you know, the stuff in the bottle versus the liquor traffic, which is, you know, sort of, uh, making money off of, uh, off of people's drunkenness in, in that particular case. Uh, that was, you know, very deep rooted and, uh, in, in many cases around the globe. And you really start to see it come into very stark relief when you look at, at places like uh, colonial South Africa, uh, when you look at uh, you know uh, the Belgians in the Congo, when you look at the, the British uh, in, in sort of their colonial domination in, in uh, India, uh, and even sort of with the, the opium wars in China, where you have the same sorts of dynamics of uh, you know sort of an imperial power bringing in uh, you know sort of a, a high-powered liquors, whiskeys, rums, that sort of stuff, uh, where there's no native or indigenous tradition of that sort of alcohol uh, consumption, um, and uh, using it to get people addicted, and then making that as something that has sort of a self-renewing, self-perpetuating demand uh, f- for, for those wares. Um, and so once you start to, to recognize that and, and stop seeing uh, you know, prohibition as, as kind of this one-off thing when you're talking about alcohol uh, politics is something that you can kind of segregate off and, and, and study up on the shelf with, uh, you know, with, with cookbooks and whatnot, you start to recognize how completely endemic it is to all sorts of uh, elements in, in different global history and, and American history as well. So, uh, so even you know, going back to American history, there's a reason why we had a whiskey rebellion in this country, right? Uh, it wasn't just because people really liked to drink. It was because whiskey was a vital component in American commerce uh, at the time of the founding of the United States. How did these attempts at prohibition resolve? Uh, we know in the American experience, we saw you know uh, a massive increase in organized crime. We saw uh, you know beer virtually disappear, being replaced by spirits of of uh, dubious quality in many cases. Uh, how did it work out in these other countries like, uh, the Austro-Hungarian empire, for example? Uh, pretty much the same. 
you know, I think those dynamics are, are fairly universal. Uh, in fact, the United States was one of the last countries uh, to repeal it, uh, repeal their prohibitions. You know, some countries, you know, it was only sort of a, a temporary wartime measure lasting through World War One. Uh, you know, Finland uh, was probably the other big holdout uh, lasting until the late 20s, early 1930s. But it has something to do with sort of the, the stickiness of uh, decision-making and policy-making in, in uh, the United States where, you know, you, ha- you had these, these prohibitionists getting, you know, the 18th Amendment ratified into the Constitution, uh, from which point nothing had ever been repealed from the, the Constitution. So they were kind of fairly well uh, uh, assured in themselves that this was going to be a permanent fixture of, of American politics. Well, it took, you know, 13 years, but eventually it does ultimately become repealed in the United States. And it, 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 it kind of fails in all these different countries for the exact same reasons, right? You get the disrespect for law and order, you get organized crime, you get uh, these black markets uh, elements that are going on. Um, and so, yeah, so to some degree, the United States was kind of, uh, you know, the, the, the last of a uh, of this global wave to finally remedy what looks to be uh, uh, you know this this error in terms of uh, alcohol control policy. Yeah, I I've said in the past that uh, at least lawmakers at the time of uh, American prohibition at least had the good manners to try to put it into the Constitution, <laughs> unlike uh, you know drug prohibition in the United States. What? To the extent you can, what are the what are the parallels between, as you as you mentioned, opium wars, alcohol, and drugs, uh, particularly in the U.S. experience? What what are the cleanest parallels that you can draw? That, that's a good question, and I'll, I'll preface this by usually s- stating that my my interests in terms of the the research and everything that I was doing was was kind of more historically focused. That I was interested in figuring out. Uh, what was happening back then? Because it really didn't make a whole lot of sense to me in the present. You know that uh, that we would have, uh, you know, this prohibitionist movements, um, you know, and uh, and have this kind of the kind of stain in uh, you know in the the Constitution to have uh, you know this Eighteenth Amendment go in and then sort of you know the Twenty First Amendment has to come through and kind of erase the Eighteenth, uh, and that in itself to me was 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 curious. I'm like, how did that even happen? That was that was my interest. Um, but from that kind of comes the question of how do we wrap our minds around what was motivating these temperance people, these these prohibitionists back in the day? Uh, and I think, you know, to get to your question, the, the probably clearest present day example isn't necessarily... Uh, you know the, the war on drugs, and isn't necessarily the uh, you know what we have with with mar- you know marijuana and uh, sort of mar- medicinal marijuana and, and everything that that kind of comes with that. Uh, I think the clearest parallel is the opioid crisis in the United States, uh, and so uh, I, I'd written a, an op-ed on the centennial of, of prohibition uh, a, a number of years ago, and this was in you know in the New York Times and whatnot, trying to to say okay, well. How is it that we wrap our minds around these 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 uh, these temperance members? Um, and I think that you know, uh, if you look at uh, the opioid epidemic, that's probably the, the clearest example. So my argument was this: it was essentially okay if if you look at the opioid epidemic in the United States, and you look at places like you know like Big Pharma, right? And if you look at Purdue Pharmaceuticals, that uh, you know that is essentially getting people knowingly getting people addicted to a highly addictive substance, uh, and then, you know, essentially sucking them dry and entire communities dry 
and making massive profits for it, you know, if, if that's okay with you, well, then that, that's okay with you. But if you think that there's something problematic with that, and maybe there should be some regulations on that. And I was like, well, congratulations. A hundred years ago, you were probably, met, you know, marching in the uh, the ranks of, of the temperance movement, um, which wasn't necessarily a bad thing, right? It was just kind of a recognition that uh, uh, there, there were limits to be put on, uh, you know, sort of this uh, this highly addictive substance, uh, and, uh, and, and recognizing that there might be a role for some degree of regulation of that market. What was the relationship, uh, to the extent you can draw it out, at least in the American experience, uh, between the advocacy for the 18th amendment and advocacy for the 19th amendment? If I recall correctly, they were adopted, uh, nationally, uh, at pretty, pretty close to contemporaneously. Right, and that's that's another interesting area where there's a lot of uh, mythologizing and myth making uh, that that kind of comes of it. Obviously, the 18th Amendment comes before the 19th Amendment uh, with women's suffrage. Uh, it's it's fascinating to me to sort of watch Twitter exchanges and and uh, and things that happen online uh, where where people roundly accuse women of kind of foisting prohibition on men in the United States, uh, which is fascinating given the, the, the overriding nature of, uh, of prohibitionism and the fact that women didn't have the right to vote yet at, at that point in time. Um, that said, obviously, uh, you know, as, as you find, you know, with things like the women's Christian temperance union, um, and, uh, you know, uh, Francis Willard, uh, as kind of the, one of the motivating factors behind that. Uh, there was a, a very strong connection between, uh, you know, temperance and prohibitionism and the women's rights movements. Um, because the argument was that, uh, again, if you go into the, you know, the, the 19th century, uh, women didn't have the right to vote. They didn't have not only the right to the vote, but, uh, didn't have political liberties, didn't have civil liberties, didn't have economic rights. And so once you got married, uh, you, essentially, you know, everything that you had as a woman was subordinate to that of your husband. And so if you happened to, uh, you know, to, to marry a, a guy who, uh, you know, who ends up getting ensnared into, uh, to, to the, the clutches of the saloon, as they would say, or gets addicted to alcohol and then gets sucked dry. Well, you know, next thing you know, you're out of a house, you're out of a job or you're out of a, you know, a, a livelihood, um, based upon no fault of your own. And so the argument was, you know, for, for women, uh, was that this was kind of home protection. I guess that was the, the rallying cry of the women's Christian temperance union, uh, was that we need to have temperance and, and prohibition because otherwise we're being subject to, um, you know, to, to the, the whims of, uh, I guess the ups and downs of, of fate that are completely outside of our control. So you could be the most responsible, uh, individual in the world, but if your husband is a drop dead alcoholic, um, you know, that, that becomes a problem, not only for you, but for, for your kids, for your parents, if you're, you know, in charge of being a caretaker for them as well. Um, and so, yeah, so there was a lot of, uh, you know, sort of overlap between the notion of women's empowerment, um, and sort of freedom from this, this predatory liquor, uh, liquor trade. Uh, and that's what's, what's interesting about that is that, uh, you know, it's, it's not just women who are pushing for this, but it's all sorts of, uh, disaffected, disenfranchised populations around the globe. So, you know, there's a, a tremendous overlap between, um, you know, prohibitionism, suffragism, abolitionism in its early incarnations. Uh, you know, what was, was fascinating was that, um, if you look at uh, people like like Frederick Douglass, um, who was he, he was probably the most famous 
temperance orator of his day. And his argument was that all great reforms go together and that he meant abolition of, of the slave trade, uh, women's rights, and, uh, and, and temperance, because he saw those all as, as things that were keeping people from achieving their greater freedom. Mark Schrott is author of Smashing the Liquor Machine. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>